And welcome, everybody, to Live at the Hive Digital Marketing from the Trenches, episode 229. I'm your host, Dan Nadelko, and today we have, we're we going overseas. Whoa, my camera is going crazy here. Uh, we're going overseas uh, with Kate Went, and we might have to redo that. <laughs> what is going on with my camera? You're pointing right at my face. Okay, let's do that again. Okay, that's easy. Okay, and welcome everybody to take two. This is the second intro of Live at the Hive Digital Marketing from the Trenches. I am your host, Dan Nadelko. Welcome to episode 229 of Live at the Hive. Um, today, we've got a special guest from the United Kingdom. We've gone overseas to find the best and the brightest. Um, Kate Went is a creative professional, marketing B2B professional. Um, Kate, I'll just throw it over to you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. And, uh, you know, uh, what we are going to talk about before I do that is how to marry content and creativity to um, unleash um, power in your marketing campaigns. And we're also going to talk a bit about uh, a specialty of Kate's, which is company uh, culture and building that. So, Kate, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, lovely intro. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> I'm sure you can. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, my name is Kate. I have been in marketing for, gosh, over 10 years now in a variety of sectors um, in the UK. Um, I currently work at uh, an employee engagement consultancy um, in York, in North Yorkshire, in the UK. And prior to that, um, I've worked in the legal sector. I've worked in construction. I've worked for a laboratory. Um, I've done all sorts of freelance within engineering. And um, it's been a real mixed bag of different types of companies. Um, I started um, working for an architects and I've kind of gone all over the map from there, gaining lots of different kinds of sector experience. Um, and where I am now is the first time that I've actually been in-house in a role. So um, very different environment being sort of agency side and mm -hmm. uh, fully immersed in kind of the creative side compared to more professional services environments. That's 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 great. And it's you know, it's something the more I talk to other marketers about, you know, their journey into marketing, very few people have this like straight line like, yeah, I decided I wanted to get into marketing. It's this kind of, you know, circuitous route that goes all over the place. And it, um, it sounds like that. So, you know, what I'm really curious about is what led you from um, and, and I know you've got a huge creative side. We'll talk a little bit about your, your pretty amazing illustrations. Um, but what, like from point A to where you are today, you know, where did you start? What led you into that, into that world of marketing? Well, so it wasn't originally what I wanted to do. Um, I did originally want to be an illustrator, um, but I kind of lost my nerve somewhere around kind of 16, 17 and started looking at alternative careers and I was studying media at the time which is obviously really broad um, but one niche of it was advertising 
And I really kind of latched into that. I really love the mix of like strategy and creativity and how those two things kind of came together and the impact it could have. So I kind of started going down that direction. And then that's where I sort of went to university. And when I went to university, I studied advertising specifically, but then within that was the marketing module. And that's where I kind of really got into it. I liked how broad the scope was. So advertising is wonderfully creative, but it's kind of one output of the whole marketing plan. And I kind of liked the whole start to finish of marketing. So that's kind of where I went. And there are bits in it that I lean more into. So I probably will always be a bit more creative than maybe analytical to a point. Mm -hmm. um, I do like how broad that is. So that's kind of what started me on the track. And then when I left university, that was the kind of roles I was heading towards. Okay, very cool. And you started out uh, freelancing. Is that how you started like immediately after school? I started off in a, in an architect's office and it was a pure admin role. There was no marketing in it at all, but it was just a case of leave university, get your first job and, and then figure out what you're going to do. And right, right. quite quick into the role that there's only so much phone answering you need to do <laughs> in a day. <laughs> Before you master that skill. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't really sort of engaging the brain so I started digging around a little bit and um kind of thinking well don't have any collateral you don't have any brochures you don't have a social media presence you your website's really quite basic and so the more I kind of dug into it the more I realized this firm's been going for 25 years they've done all these incredible projects and they've got nothing shouting about it at all so I just started basically interfering mm -hmm. <laughs> doing marketing without asking and before I knew it I was kind of doing that more than I was doing the admin and then I just became the marketing department and I was there for two and a half years and then by the time I left there was a proper kind of marketing function there um and I'd kind of reached the point where there was not a lot more I could really kind of do mm -hmm. so off you go from there. Right. No, yeah. that's, that's, that, that's an awesome example. We are going to talk a little bit about the B2B space, which you do have significant background in. We also work in B2B. Um, and it's, it, it's funny because we, we do have manufacturing clients that do like cladding on the outside of buildings, mm -hmm. which is incredibly creative, actually. <laughs> it sounds boring, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's shocking how often you see like an architect is, I, I mean, it's an incredibly creative and art driven and psychology driven mm -hmm. profession um that the number of uh firms you would see that that yeah to your point you've got all these great projects and you put them in the you know in the bottom filing cabinet once you're done yeah. right yeah and that that really is you know, part of the whole thing about marketing um and since then um you've moved on and uh with your current role sounds like it's a pretty high growth um uh, organization growing pretty quickly and you you kind of started there on the ground floor um, maybe tell us a little bit about that and you know what you're doing there and um, you know what is it like to be a marketer when you know your company is, say doubling every year in size for example yeah it's it's amazing to see how much we've grown um, especially in the past two years which as everybody who's been through the last two years will know that's no mean feat to see any kind of growth during the challenges that we've had. But I think it really speaks to the expertise that we have. So we 
Um, we're in the kind of employee engagement, culture, digital transformation space. So we're about making a world of work better, basically. Anything that involves the employee experience, that's something that we touch. And it's been a massive challenge for companies to retain staff, engage staff, speak with speak with furloughed employees, um, run virtual events in a hybrid space for their work for their people. Um, mm-hmm. so there's been a lot of challenges that have impacted the workplace specifically. And I think that's something that our clients have come to us in the pandemic with those challenges, um, really looking for the sort of innovations and solutions that we can support them with. Um, mm-hmm. Because of that and because of how much that has grown we too have had to grow to meet that demand so we've welcomed a lot more consultants um we've welcomed specialists uh, so we have a behavioral scientist we have a cultural anthropologist um we are also taking on motion graphics and film uh, specialists as well so it's really speaking to the mix of um real sort of deep understanding of psychology and of what makes people tick married with a really creative output of managing to make that kind of land for employees within the business mm-hmm. um, so it's interesting to see how we've gone from basically a graphic design agency back in the 90s to this full-scale consultancy that's you know doing things for brands around the world now um, it's quite amazing to sort of see that growth. So being involved in that, I've, I've been with um, Scarlett Abbott for three years now, and I've seen us change loads in that time, not just in terms of how much we've grown with the people. We went through a major brand refresh. Um, we really changed our look and feel. We changed a lot of aspects about our marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we're continuing to kind of evolve and learn and build on the stuff that we've learned, particularly over these last last three years, which have been really um, challenging. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're marrying, you know, science with that creativity. And, and it sounds like there's, you know, quite a few people involved in that process. And what's so what's your role specifically within that process? Um, and, and how do you take you know, something that a behavioral psychologist, for example, will bring you and turn that into reality. And and I mean, I'm sure it's a very detailed process, but maybe just because some of the higher level uh, kind of concepts would be great. Sure. Um, our structure internally, um, we're made up of consultants, designers and writers. And then there are kind of people like me who don't sit within the pods. I'm kind of a floating resource. Um, and I just as the picture at the top of this says, I am the marketing department. That That's true. <laughs> I am the one person in marketing, but I don't do it without a lot of help from the whole team. Um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that's me. I'm the marketing department. Um, seems kind of passive aggressive, but it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a it's a big collaborative effort. Um, I'm kind of the coordinator. I'm a bit like the air traffic control, I suppose, kind of keeping gotcha. in out all the time, like what's going on? What are we working on? What case studies? What are our clients doing? What are our clients asking us? Um, what's happening internally? And then just trying to pick the best of that and marry that with my kind of strategy for the year. So there's usually a skeleton framework for the year, but mm-hmm. then it kind of being reactive to things that are changing and happening around us all the time. So there's a lot of listening going on all the time and a lot of working with specific experts in the business to to really understand the problems that they solve for clients and try to 
simplify that down into the content to to showcase really easily and quickly what problems we can solve. Um, and a lot of that is just pointing to things like case studies and pointing to interesting statistics and things like that that showcase how effective using some of these techniques can be. Okay, cool. So it, it sounds like no two projects are the same. <laughs> Might be common threads, but when you get down into the details, it's it's everything is a snowflake there. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, the types of clients that we work with are really broad. So we work with um, lots of professional services firms in the, um, that are global. We have a, you'll you'll probably know the same, there are certain clients that you can't talk about, although being external marketing, you get to talk about them a bit more because we're internal. We are NDA'd all over the all shop. All over the place, yeah, fair enough. And can't mention them. So a lot of the time I sort of go, well, we work with a major social media platform. Can't tell you which <laughs> one. We work with a major in, international gaming console company. Can't tell you which one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's really broad. And what's really interesting is, like you say, very different, but common threads. We see yeah. that work that we do for these clients in terms of their workplaces are obviously very different. A law firm is very different to a, a social media company. But the common threads that run through that are the same challenges of how do you keep employees motivated? How do you keep them engaged? How do you keep your company culture strong? Um, how do you offer the types of benefits that people want in a workplace? Um, mm -hmm. How do you communicate your strategy? How do you upskill your leaders to talk to people better? It's the same challenges, whatever kind of company you have. Um, so that that's the sort of thing that kind of pulls all our work together. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So it sounds like the evolution of, you know, there's a foosball table and we have a, um, uh, a company uh, restaurant that's for free, which is kind of the, you know, the startup uh, vision of tech companies, you know, like that's what they do. So it's, it sounds like it's a quite a bit of an evolution from, from those days to where we are today. Yeah, very much so very much. Um, and it, it's, you know, we, we've been saying it for a long time and then the pandemic kind of kicked a lot of people into catching up with that methodology that if you have an on-site gym and you have subsidized meals and you have all these things they're just kind of the thing that's keeping you at work in the workplace it's just mm -hmm. kind of there to make you feel a bit better about having to work long hours in a workplace uh, those aren't necessarily the benefits that people want so, yeah, that yeah. that is the that is the big criticism of uh, uh, the Googleplex, right? Where you can yeah. literally live there um, and not have to go. So that's all fascinating. I just want to do a little bit of a pivot, and then we'll come back to company culture um, because I feel like we could talk about this for <laughs> the entire run of the show. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you've got this huge background in B2B marketing, and I know that's something that we, we talk about a lot. Um, and, you know, B2B can seem to be one of the most boring things in the world, depending on what you're working on. And infusing creativity can be a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you've got some background and anecdotes and love to hear a little bit about that, about how you go from, um, you know, a B2B client that is very boring, but finding the creative spark and maybe some anecdotes and some tips for everybody watching, you know, what's the case study and you know what was your solution coming from a creative background i think that gives you a, a unique perspective yeah definitely um 
I think my first role where I went to the architects, I was a bit spoiled in that I was already surrounded by really interesting people doing really interesting things. And, oh, look, they've built uh, an incredible building. How interesting. Like it kind of sort of sells itself a bit in terms of you get some really nice photography, you talk about the project. There you go. That's already mm -hmm. exciting. By the time I'd kind of got into my career a bit and moved into a few different roles, I ended up working for a um, building merchant supplier. So basically uh, distributing things like drywall and fire bricks and <laughs> insulation. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's not called dry wall <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> um, but there is always a story to be told about something. And yes, it may have a very practical application. It's a bit, it does what it says on the tin. But you start by picking apart the kind of stories about the products. Where are they actually going? Who's using them? What buildings are they being used in? Are they, if they're a fire product, they're saving lives. You know, they're making, they're giving you peace of mind. They're making something safe. Um, one of the things that um, I did in my role at that company was I did a lot of press releases and I, I did a lot of sort of writing of the stories of the projects that we were helping. So we weren't the builders of these projects. We were just part of a big chain that gets this building built. Um, but without the products that we supply, it wouldn't happen. So I started to kind of speak to um, some of the uh, reps that worked with these companies and find out what we were actually supplying because you don't often get to find out. And we started to write up the case studies of the buildings that got built. And one of them was um, a really high-end, amazing building that was actually going to feature on a show that we have over here in the UK called Grand Designs. And it's um, it's a sort of an architect's dream of a program because it's the buildings that get um, shown in there are really innovative. People really push the boundaries with the types of um, projects that they create. There's always a bit of drama because the budget runs out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like that's that. why you, that's why you have those reality shows for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. is it going to get finished? Um, and it was really it was really cool to actually realise that we played a part in in that. And then the more we started to dig into it, the more stories we'd find about actually our project our projects are going into major hospitals. They're going into the wing of like neonatal units. They're going into um, really sort of prestigious schools and it's when you sort of realize what part your products and your services are actually playing in the bigger story and also the community and then the mm -hmm. impact and the fact that that creates jobs and then you start to really pick apart the human element of the story and that's where it gets really interesting so it's no longer just a piece of plasterboard it's what it's doing for that economy that that culture that that community and that's where it gets starts to get interesting yeah, absolutely, and and I mean, really, what you're highlighting there is is coming at us from a storytelling narrative, right? Like, what's the story? Mm -hmm. Reminds me of you know the famous story that I love because I lived through it because I'm I'm a dinosaur, and I'm ancient. Was back in in the early 2000s when uh, the iPod came out. At the time, um, I don't know if you, you recall, but at the time there were all of these flash MP3 players. Uh, there was a Rio, it was called, and they said, you know, 32 or six gigabytes or eight gigabytes flash drive SSD, which is the drywall, right? Like that's the drywall. And yeah. then um, Apple came out and, and with um, the playlist of your life, and an iPod mm -hmm. held a thousand songs. It, how many yeah. gigabytes was it? Don't worry about it. 
It's yeah. a thousand songs. Who cares? Um, and moving into the why of it. And then all of a sudden, you know, Barack Obama is being interviewed with, uh, you know, um, on on NBC Nightly News or whatever, showing his iPod and, and what he's listening to. Uh, and, and it's a great example what you're saying about finding the why and getting away from the details because nobody really cares about, you know, what the what what element goes into it right the model number of the plasterboard for example it's important yeah. and it's important to the company you're working for but the end result is the impactful storytelling marketing side totally it's yeah. funny you mentioned that example i actually um saw that just the other day and remembered what a great campaign that was because i think it was it was a thousand songs in your pocket i think yeah. it was and it's yeah it's like how beautifully succinct is that that tells yeah. you everything you need to know. I don't need to know what spec it is or anything like that. It's yeah. Apple getting it right again. <laughs> Apple getting it right. And yeah, absolutely. And, right. and you know, Simon Sinek talks about, you know, start with the why. But yeah, Steve Jobs was really, you know, one of the pioneers of that, like driving that message home. Uh, just a funny side anecdote. Uh, around that time, uh, I was single. I'm married now. So this is history. Um, I was dating a violinist. And so I would hang out with like real live musicians like classically trained professional musicians um and i had one of these rio flash players and i was always trying to explain it to them right and they were like no that's garbage obviously right like they're they're playing violins in a concert hall right um and i'm showing them you know digitized mp3 music but when that campaign came out and really started to roll it was amazing everybody in the symphony had bought an ipod and they loved it right and it's like that's that's a great example of like how marketing can motivate and change people's perceptions very, very quickly. Yeah. But I love, I love how you, um, one of the things I love there that I think is a huge takeaway is, um, when you were talking to your field reps, um, I think that's something that, uh, not enough marketers do is actually talk to sales teams and people on the field and customer service. Is that something, uh, a technique that was that the first time you had done that and, and why, like, was it just a natural thing that you went there or, cause that is a technique that a lot of marketers yeah. don't employ. Yeah. I think, um, prior to that job, the two jobs I'd had before the companies were really quite small. So everybody that there was to speak to was there in that office. So it wasn't that kind of environment. And when I got to the um, building suppliers company, it was a really different type of environment. So we were at head office, but there were 22 branches around the country. And it was a big cultural thing that you would visit the different branches. There was an expectation that you would spend a fair amount of time going around and meeting them. And they were right across the country. And um, there was a sense that they didn't want any us and them between the branches. A bit of healthy competition is fine for, you know, comparing sales figures and, and all of that stuff, but in a motivational sense. But they didn't mm -hmm. want any kind of silo and they really didn't want that between the branches and head office. So a lot of time, particularly for us in our sort of marketing team of three, as we were at the time, mm -hmm. was getting out and about and speaking to people, picking up the phone. And a big part of my role in that was um, actually the internal communications. So uploading these kinds of stories on our intranet, writing for our internal um, news magazine that would land on everybody's desks. 
Um, and that was a huge thing to be involved in. That was the first taste I'd really had of internal communications. Mm. We launched this internal newspaper. It was sort of somewhere between a magazine and a newspaper. And the point of it was that not everybody had phone access. You had people in the warehouse. You had the drivers out on the road. This was something physical that go, could go into every branch, every warehouse, every canteen. People could pick it up. They could see what's going on in the different branches. They could read some stories, like I said, about, you know, where are our products going? What part are we playing in that chain? And feel really proud about it. And we, the feedback we get is a lot of people were taking these home to their families and saying, look, you know, that's that's our branch. That's what we do. Like we were voted branch of the month or whatever. And mm -hmm. here's some stuff or we got a profile. And that really opened my eyes to the power of the people in your organization and what part that plays in your marketing. Mm -hmm. Although that starts as internal, that stuff always leaks out into the perception of what it's like to work at the company and mm -hmm. therefore work with that company. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the other things uh, that, that must have happened naturally, and this is something we try to do uh, with our clients, is we actually start with the sales team because they're typically the closest. They're mm -hmm. crossing over from the lead to you know closing the deal, to onboarding that client, to seeing you know, if there's a problem, um, by creating those stories that you were creating and, and creating the bigger picture, it sounds like those were assets that that sales team could then use to show to potential clients to get the big picture instead of saying, you know, uh, well in the, in the drywall sense, you know, like you have seven different types of drywall you can pick here, but this is the big picture, right? Like were those assets kind of reuse these, you mentioned some leakage, but it sounds like there'd be a huge opportunity to reuse that, recycle it, put it in different contexts, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's something that was still sort of slightly in its infancy um, when mm -hmm. I was there. And I know that since I've left and the marketing department's kind of grown, it's something that they do even more of now. And, and it's something I'm a big advocate of, something that we call at Scarlet Abbott mosaic content, which is kind of chopping things up, repurposing them, using them across different channels and platforms internally and externally. You can get quite meta with it and um, really sort of get your content to work really hard for you. And particularly if you're a small marketing team, that's mm -hmm. gold dust as well, because there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, you know, now you've got your TikToks, you've got Twitter, you've got Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, like, you know, the and, and the content's just ramping up. So having the ability to create, as you say, that mosaic content, uh, repurpose and reuse it appropriately across all of those uh, channels is, is really, in my mind, the, the only uh, efficient way. There's the inefficient way, which which yeah. which we don't probably typically have access to. But um, yeah, being able to repurpose across all those channels and and get get everything out there on social as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so just to, so that's some really great advice, and and I totally agree. Uh, you know, one of the other things, and and this is just kind of my little um, uh, ghetto research uh channel um one of my favorite research channels is actually reddit.com as what i found over the years and i've been on reddit for a very long time too long longer than i'd like to admit um about 15 years um and one of the things is is for every topic out there uh reddit is like i mean i've done things on group group benefit plans um health spending accounts, taxation issues, like really boring, super dry stuff. You can go to Reddit and you will find a subreddit 
for tax lawyers in the UK and then one for like tax lawyers in Canada. And they get you get this unfiltered, unfettered uh, access to people's opinions because it's on Reddit. Right. Um, do you like in terms of the, your inspiration and where you go to get inspired? Do you have any tips? Um, and that could apply to your illustrations. It could apply to anything. But, you know, what's some of your process for inspiration? I love that about Reddit. I haven't used it for that, but I can completely get behind that because, you know, you can send out your surveys and your forums and things, but it's that qualitative. I can never say the word qualitative, qualitative yeah. stuff you want. You know, you really want those kind of unfiltered, as you say, opinions about something um, that you can't always get from just a, a simple survey that kind of leads you in a direction anyway. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the role I'm in now, it, there is so much listening that goes on to to kind of source what content we want to talk about, what problems we want to solve. And for us in our space, a lot of that happens on LinkedIn. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of forums and groups for, say, um, HR managers, internal comms professionals, marketing professionals. Um, when we kind of speak to all three of those departments, because depending on the organization, some have more mature internal comms departments than others. So some are very much in with the marketing, some are in with the HR, some are big and broad and kind of standalone. So there's a lot of listening to the challenges that those teams have. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of listening to the reaction to things that are happening in the news from general public opinion when it comes to things that impact the world of work. So um, for example, over in the UK, one of our, um, transportation companies, ferry company called P&O, um, they went um, rogue recently and fired massive chunk of their workforce suddenly, overnight, uh, with no communication whatsoever. So they were mm -hmm. just fired. They were told over a, a recorded Zoom call um, with no ability to ask any questions, no recourse, nothing. Um, horrible example of uh, leadership, poor leadership, bad company culture, all of the stuff that, you know, we, we would not advocate to do. Mm -hmm. So the responses to things like this as well, looking at a lot of commentary around what people say about where people are getting it right and where people are getting it wrong and understanding you know why that's a very obvious and extreme case you know you anyone could look at that and go well that's wrong but there's yeah. a lot of nuance and a lot of examples that aren't as um strong as that and there's a lot of listening that goes on to to kind of understand what's happening in the world the response to the way the world of work is changing for example um the return to work the return to office you know yep. how are people feeling about that how do employees feel do they do they want to go back do they not do they want the choice where where does that lie and that informs a lot of um content that we have you know a lot of webinars we do a lot of podcasts a lot of content that we put out trying mm -hmm. to understand and constantly shift to what the mood is around these sorts of topics and then go, okay, right, well, we understand that actually in that case, it really is a bit of a split. Some people do want to go back, some people don't. How does that impact the employer? You know, what challenges is that going to put on them? And therefore, how can we help in either instance? If you're going to have people not wanting to come back, how can we protect your company culture? How can we help you thrive in a hybrid world? How can we help you upskill to meet some of the challenges that that might present for you and that's really rich information that we can get just from listening which yeah. in any marketer's toolbox really is to listen more than you, more than you speak 
<laughs> exactly. No. And, and I know that's amazing advice. I mean, you know, from, from our personal perspective at, at Honeypot over, over the pandemic and over having to um, lock down and you weren't allowed in the office. Um, I'm lucky enough that uh, our team is small enough that uh, I could just go around uh, the table with everybody uh, and have one-to-ones and, and basically just ask, you know, what's, what do you want to do? Like, uh, are you, are you, and, and overwhelmingly 100% um, everybody loved the work-life balance of working from home. Uh, we were lucky in the sense that, uh, and I'll touch on this in a, in a second, but we were already very much remote capable. Like everything is in the cloud. We had used Slack for years before that as part of our culture. We did do obviously daily standups and things in the office, but you know, turning that into a virtual experience was pretty easy for us because most of our clients are not physically located where we are. Um, but it's interesting at that time, uh, especially early on, amazing the number of companies that just said go home, but did, had no cultural infrastructure to support what going home meant. And then there were some organizations that I even spoke to that, uh, you know, people were quitting because like they just had no communication. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, because the company just wasn't tooled for it. So that's also something that you work with companies on is that hybrid uh, and, and online approach. And culturally, you need to, to change and pivot towards that, right? Yeah, it's a massive challenge. Um, you know, when it really did feel like one day we were all in the office, the next day, pick up your stuff and go home. And we we were really fortunate, like you, uh, that we had been using Teams for a long time. We We were very sort of adept at being able to work out of different locations and and we we we've managed to flex to that really really well um but we had clients you know in the legal sector who are very sort of um rigid's not the word but just really established in their working practices and it being geared around the physical location and also there's a lot of security that goes with that as well your files your the protection of your documents that's all on site so that's yeah, and, and legal and legal compliance right yeah yeah a huge huge challenge before you even get into the um, the cultural side of that so there was a lot of work that we did from a digital transformation point of view our head of digital um tony stewart's you know, just an absolute whiz kid when it comes to this stuff. And I think he spent quite a lot of the early pandemic doing a lot of hold hand hand holding with clients around how on earth are we going to make this work? And, you know, fortunately for a lot of companies, it wasn't a case of having to beg for the budget. It was, you know, let's throw the money at the tech solutions, but it was, how do we get this right? How do we make sure we actually choose the right thing and implement it well? In terms of the culture side of it, it was very much a let's listen on a daily, weekly basis to how your people are feeling. Let's make sure that your leaders are really present. Let's make sure that they are really accessible and making themselves available. Um, so a lot of a lot of vulnerability came through, mm -hmm. I think, which kept cultures together. When your leaders kind of appearing on screen and going, hi, everyone, like, I hope you're all okay. I'm in my living room. You're in your living rooms. This is all a bit weird. We don't mm -hmm. really know what's going on, but we'll keep letting you know. You know, that honesty and that authenticity, I think, was incredibly important when it came to making people feel connected. Um, yeah. There was uncertainty. For sure. And and actually, I, I did want to touch on that, and, and both within your own organization and within your clients. Um, when you're creating that company culture, I kind of look at it as a, it's a social contract, like anything else. As a, you know, there's a, they're both sides agree to spoken or unspoken certain terms. 
And I think, you know, one of the interesting things, and you touched on it, especially in more traditional organizations was, you know, the VP may have been sitting in a, in a corner office before, and you wouldn't know that, uh, you know, she's got two kids at home, uh, mm -hmm. two and f five years old. Uh, but, you know, working from home environment, it really, it really, um, flattened a lot of things, I think, and brought people together to say, oh, well, our VP has, you know, her kids ripping up her office or walking in in the middle of a meeting. Um, and I think that's, you know, it may be disconcerting to some people, especially when it's new, but I think there's power in that, in that kind of um, relatability across teams. Yeah, definitely. And I think now that you've seen it, the genie's really out of the bottle. We can't go back um, mm -hmm. necessarily to the way things were. We've we've had that peek behind the curtain that something a bit more real and a bit more authentic. So, and I think people respond well to that, and that's something we don't want to lose as we start to kind of shape what normal looks like post pandemic. You know, however hybrid that split might be in your organisation, there are certain things that we we should keep, and that kind of authentic leadership visibility I think is something that's that's high on that list so where pre previously we might have had very glossy over engineered messages from leadership you know coming down from the ivory tower with a very polished message on video yeah. now it's time for real town halls it's get out and about if you can't get on the video call schedule time to chat with your people you know keep mm -hmm. it real really I think that's what people want um and I think the challenge going forward is maintaining that. And I think another big challenge culturally for organizations is how do we onboard new people into our workplaces? Um, like, for example, with our culture, we used to be based in our lovely office in York. It was very creative, very buzzy. Everybody would be in chatting, the music's on, you know, everybody's having fun. Um, and, and it was where a lot of inspiration and sparky conversations would happen on the off the fly kind of thing you wouldn't plan for those sorts of um moments and when we all shifted to working remotely everything became very scheduled and regimented and you lost those moments of spontaneity and mm -hmm. i think as people join organizations post pandemic as things have shifted it's really important to make sure that they're getting the right experience when they join um, and that they are supported, particularly if you are now in a very hybrid environment, making sure that people are connected into the team properly. Um, we have people now all over the country, whereas we were you, always before York and London, and there was no one really in between. And now we've, you know, the, the talent pool has opened up completely with remote working. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, for uh, specifically for, like I said, a smaller organization, like like ours and and technically you know in the grand scheme of the world you're also a smaller organization when you look at you know yeah. the googles and the facebooks of the world um but yeah the talent pool has opened up internationally um really um and you yeah. know the things that we try to do are just really practical pragmatic no don't be overly complicated uh, for example we have a daily stand-up where everybody has their cameras on uh yeah. we kick it off for five to ten minutes of no work talk just you know what's going on um and uh we have a feature in slack um that's really great called the huddle um where anybody can go into a channel or directly with somebody else and start up a huddle which helps kind of that hybrid 
uh, you know, spark of a conversation like, hey, I just want to talk to you for five minutes. Let's get into a huddle. Anybody can kind of jump into it uh, as well. So I think, you know, obviously larger organizations need to engage with with firms like yours, smaller organizations. I think they could do very simple things that have really big, impactful uh, changes, just kind of like dropping a pebble into a pond and the waves ripple on out, right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's just a case of being really intentional in mm-hmm. going, we don't want to lose this or we want to make sure that we make space for those kind of moments and those kind of interactions. If that's a priority to you and it should be, then be intentional with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and just as we're wrapping up here, because, um, you know, you've given uh, so many great uh experiences and techniques and tips on, on company culture. Um, we talked about that social contract on, on terms of leadership um, kind of res- responsibilities, but what's on your side of the contract? What about for team members that maybe aren't in leadership positions or, or throughout the organization? Uh, any tips for those individuals to kind of keep up their side of the social contract? Yeah, I think, you know, it does start with leadership in in a sense that the leadership kind of sets the tone. You know, they are in the privileged position of being the leader. So people will look to them for permission to a certain extent and for what's expected. But I think the most important thing is to create an environment that has psychological safety, where you feel able to speak out if something's wrong, where you feel safe to put your hand up if you have an idea, where everybody feels that no matter what their role in the company, from CEO down to you know the most junior part-time member of staff, feels like they understand their place in the organization, what they contribute, and the fact that they are an important part of that mission. It's, it's kind of the old adage of um, asking the cleaner what he does at NASA, and he says, I help to put people on the moon. It's mm-hmm. understanding that, you know, everybody has a vital role to play in that. And if you foster that kind of environment, then people will feel that they can get engaged. There will You will always have a mix of people where, some feel confident to you know stick their hand up all the time and and want to naturally mm-hmm. lead and take charge and you will have people who want to sit back um you know personality types naturally go into different areas of involvement within the team and that's what makes a team good you don't want a whole gaggle of people that are fighting for attention nor do you want an entire team of quiet introverts it does take that mix but i think the most important thing is for a leader to set the tone and Mm -hmm. for everybody to communicate and to keep talking and to have a sense of pride in their workplace that they are all involved in and understand their their role in that and that helps to foster a safe environment where everybody can get involved Absolutely. I would 100% agree with everything you're saying. And, and like I said, uh, in terms of, you know, how I try to conduct myself within Honeypot, um, I've done a lot of reading on psychology and, and, and these kinds of things and, and coming out of it are just a few really simple things that can help foster those safe spaces is, um, if you make a, a set a meeting with somebody, and you say, I want to have a one-on-one. Don't leave an empty meeting description. Don't just say, I want a one-on-one with you because if you're in a position of leadership and you're talking to a newer junior, you're going to terrify that person in the interim between meeting with them, right? And so uh, one of the things I try to do is one book one-on-ones that says, hey, this is off the record. This is uh, you and I. This is between you and me. Um, you can say whatever you want and 
you know, we can go and deal with that. Um, and then you can have other huddles, which are, well, let's talk about this project, but it's, there's always a background. So if it's a Slack or a Teams message, it's not, hey, can we chat? Cause then it's like, you hear the background. Yeah. Right. Can we chat in an hour? Well, you've just destroyed that person's hour because you know that they're mentally off. But if it's, hey, are you free in an hour just to talk for 15 minutes about how you're feeling and, and you, how you think the specific project is going or whatever it might be, um, mm -hmm. just let me know. Then I think you foster a sense of like, OK, I know what's coming. Right. Yeah. Um, totally. and, and oh, sorry. Go, on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. And you just reminded me of, of um, something that we've just finished, actually, which sits really nicely between the psychological safety and the onboarding in hybrid. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about the employee experience and how that starts before somebody's actually joined the company. So it starts with, you know, the job advert that you see. It's, it, it's the interview that you have. It's the impression that you get on the social channels and the website and what you know about that company and what other people say on Glassdoor and all of that stuff kind of comes together to form your opinion of a workplace. And mm -hmm. when you come to an interview at Scala Abbott and fortunately you get offered the job, you then have that period of time where you've accepted the job, but you can't start yet because you're working out your notice period. So you're in this kind of limbo of leaving your previous job. You've not started with us yet. There's excitement, but there's also a bit of trepidation. You know, I've only mm -hmm. seen a bit of this company what's it really going to be like am I going to fit in all of that stuff so we've just created um, a really nice online publication that gets sent out with a link to someone before they start and you click onto it and it takes you into this lovely sort of interactive document that basically says you know welcome to the team um, mm -hmm. here are some things before you join us and there's some welcome videos from the leadership team there's um, some stuff to help you get to know the team. There's a jargon buster in there, which um, because, you know, agencies are absolutely full of acronyms and, yeah. and sort of language and things like that. So there's a really helpful jargon buster. There's things like where's good to get lunch around the office? How are you going to get to the office on your first day? Like all those things. And it's hopefully giving this sense before you've even joined us of what we're all about you feel like you know some faces before you've actually started. You know what what kind of work that we do, and you've just had a bit of a taster. So it's not going in completely blind on your first day. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, if you can do something like that to set the tone in your organisation before you start, you're onto a winner with people. That's that's amazing advice, and uh, I want to steal the idea of new hires getting personalised videos from from leadership and from the team as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's fantastic. And, and that would also work. I think one of the other uh, key points as we just kind of wrap it up is, um, you know, you'd love to have a 100% retention rate at all times for both your clients and your team. But we all know that that's not 100% realistic, especially today, but also a process as people move on into new roles and leave the company. Right. I think that there's there's a lens that uh, culturally you want to put on with the team is to provide reassurance. And I think fundamentally, as human beings, the majority of human beings just don't like change. Right. It's I, I like the way things are here. And when change comes, I get nervous. I get anxious. It affects mm -hmm. the rest of my life. Um, um, but having that the, also that transition for people that are outgoing and that's a good, normal um process i don't want to use the other analogy which is like end of life because that's a little dark but <laughs> but like it is a normal process in a work professional workplace that people are going to move on and people are going to come on board 
Definitely. You know, it's a whole of life thing from onboarding to offboarding. And offboarding mm -hmm. is a process that I think does really get overlooked because, you know, people hand their notes in and it's kind of like, well, there's no point investing in them anymore. They're going, which is a really wrong headed way of looking at it. Um, in terms of the change, um, I've got to say something that our boss always says, because um, we always say, oh, people hate change. Um, and then she says, well, if people hated change, they'd never play the lottery. Mm -hmm. because <laughs> that's probably one of the biggest changes you could have in your life if you won. It's not the change that people fear, it's the uncertainty, yeah. um, which is such a good way of looking at it. Like, we are more resilient than you think. We we can handle change. It's how change mm -hmm. is communicated to us. Um, and in terms of offboarding, there's a lovely example um, from credit card company Monzo in the pandemic um, when they knew that they were going to have to um, lay off quite a lot of members of the team, they created um, a sort of microsite section on, on the website to advertise the people that were, were going to, they were going to be losing and to sort of basically say, here are some of the stars from Monzo and what they've done for us and all their skills, snap mm -hmm. them up. They're really talented people. You know, we don't want to lose them, but, you know, please check them out. And I think that's an amazing example of a company doing something to advocate for their people and make sure that they, you know, move on to some, to another great opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic example. And I did see that and a bunch of other examples. Um, I think one of the things that the pandemic has, has in, in, like you say, the opening up of the workforce, which a lot of companies are taking advantage of is actually this, this notion that uh, an us versus them in a company and when a company lays off that the leadership somehow relishes this, um, which is never the case, or at least not that I've ever seen. Um, no leader would ever be like, okay, yeah, I get to lay off 30% of my workforce. It's just never really been communicated openly that this is like, you know, this is not something we want. Um, and that's a, a an amazing uh, way to turn um, the perception around of of this kind of heartless corporation that doesn't really yeah. care by doing those kinds of uh, making those kinds of efforts in the offboarding. Yeah, because I think you can have um, you could have had an amazing ten years at a company, and the last two weeks can sour the whole thing if it goes wrong. And I often say to people, we live in a time now where we review our work experiences on Glassdoor like we review our meals on TripAdvisor. Yeah. So you know, you need to make sure that you keep that experience good all the way to the end. Yeah. And I know it can be hard, especially for smaller businesses when they have key employees that move on, you can be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, hurt and sad or whatever it might be. But yeah, having that last two weeks turn into a, a, a dismissive process is definitely not a good thing, no matter how hard it is. Um, and yeah, you know, Glassdoor is an interesting case. I have some opinions on Glassdoor, but I think like with anything in the world of reviews, mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's sometimes inevitably that people will be upset. That yeah. can happen, but you have to balance that and counteract it with the positivity. And I, I don't know about you, but when I look at any reviews, if I see all, you know, if there's 1,900 reviews or whatever it might be, and they're all five star, I'm I kind of... Fish yeah, is fishy here. This isn't yeah. this isn't possible, right? Yeah, um, there's more. Is how does the company respond to the negative reviews? Yeah. That's what we care about more. Exactly, exactly. Okay, well, I feel like we can talk about this for a whole other hour. We actually had about 30, 35 minutes scheduled for it, and I am looking, and I think we're pretty much at an hour. So, Kate. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, we Thank actually you. had the original title of this, which is down below, as uh, marrying. Uh, 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 
content and creativity, talking a lot about marketing and B2B, which was a section of this, but I think we have to change the title, which is good that we've recorded this, uh, because we talked a lot more about culture, uh, team culture, positivity, and how to build a company culture. So yeah. I love the fact that we went down that path. And I wanted to thank you so much for uh, taking time out at the end of your day over there in the UK. Um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for for joining us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. Absolutely. And we will see you all next week on Live at the Hive Digital Marketing from the Trenches. Same B time, same B channel. Peace. <laughs>